0: Well, let me tell you at the beginning of our time together today uh, something that I know that all of you already know, and that is that when Jesus was on the earth and teaching the multitudes, that he often employed a teaching strategy which utilized parables. You know this, don't you? You're familiar with the parables of Jesus. When you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you hear Jesus telling stories over and over again to make his point. So what a parable is, by the way, a parable is an earthly story. It's a story which utilizes circumstances or situations or items or objects that are very common and that all of the people listening would know about and would understand, but the story is not about those things. The story is about a heavenly truth. It's it's an earthly story which is utilized to convey a heavenly truth or a heavenly meaning, and so Jesus was always talking in very common people kinds of terms. He talked uh, about salt and, and he talked about candles and he, and he talked about sheep and, and he used coins uh, to illustrate things and he talked about watchtowers and vineyards and all of the things that all of them would understand. They're, these are beautiful parables to communicate these heavenly truths. But did you know that there was one parable, of all of the parables that Jesus used, there was one, and as far as I know, it's the only one, that Jesus told twice. Near the end of his life, in fact, in the last week or so of his life, he told the same parable on two different occasions in two different locations into two different groups of people. One of those is recorded in Luke chapter number 19 and the other one is in Matthew chapter number 25. And in both of these parables, Jesus is telling the story of a wealthy person, a wealthy man who is going on a journey. And in that journey, he's going to go away for a while, but he's going to return. And while he's gone, he leaves all of his possessions, all of his business affairs in the hands of his servants. And he says to them, I'm going away, I'm going to come back, and when I come back, we're going to talk about how you have done managing my business in my absence. That's the point of both of those parables, It's really the same parable. Um, even though he uses, he tells the parable with a couple of variations. In Luke, it's it's uh, ten servants who receive the possessions of the wealthy man. And in Matthew, it's three. But the point of the parable is exactly the same. What Jesus was conveying is, I'm leaving, I'm going away, but I'm going to come again. And when I come back, we are going to talk about how you have advanced my work, how you have advanced my business, how you have worked for my glory and what you have done with what I have given you. I want you to feel that this morning. I want you to feel both the celebration of the fact that Jesus is coming again, but I also want you to feel the weight of the reality that Jesus is coming again. We ought to approach it that way. There ought to be moments where we go, praise the Lord, Jesus is coming. And other moments where we go, whew, Jesus is coming. And we feel the reality of our responsibility while we await his return. Listen to how Jesus uh, said this in his parable of the pounds in Luke 19. It says, and he called his 10 servants and he delivered unto them 10 pounds and he said, Occupy until I come. I love that phrase, occupy until I come. The word occupy means to do my business, do my work. In other words, here's a way to say it. Occupy my position or occupy my place while I'm going away. We think of the word occupy as we just sit. We don't do anything. We're just kind of chilling. We're just occupying a spot. No, Jesus said, I want you to be about my occupation. That's what he meant. Be about my work during this time that I'm gone. And when I come, again, we are going to talk about how you've done with what I've left in your care. Now, you see, loved ones, here's the thing. This reality of the return of Jesus ought to be the motivator for every single day of our lives. It ought to be the motivator for everything that we do as a church. Here's the reality. Christ is coming. What am I doing while I'm waiting for him to return? That ought to be the motivator, the motivating question of my life. There really are two flag posts in your life, two markers in your life. The first one is this. I met Jesus here on this time, on this day, at this season in my life. I have met Jesus. The second marker is this. Jesus is coming again. And the real thing that matters is what am I doing between the day that I met Jesus and the day that I see Jesus or the day that he comes again. What matters is what I do in the waiting and This is what I want us to focus our hearts on today and for the next few weeks because this is Paul's message to the believers in Thessalonica. I've asked you to turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Most of you will know that this is actually a letter, a brief personal note that the apostle Paul wrote to the believers in Thessalonica. It's called the book of Thessalonians because it was written to the Thessalonians, people who lived in the city of Thessalonica. A little bit of information about the city of Thessalonica. It was a Greek city. During the time of Paul in the first century, it was a bustling port city, a really important city, both culturally, socially, as well as biblically or in the development of the New Testament church. It was a significant city, a couple of hundred thousand people that lived there, a Greek community living in that Roman Empire, and it held or housed a significant Jewish community as well. It's important in the development of the history of the church because Thessalonica was the second European city to be evangelized by the Apostle Paul. Now that's really important to know, that when God sent the gospel to Europe, the second place where the gospel was preached was in Thessalonica, second only to Philippi. Philippi was first and then Thessalonica. In fact, hold your finger in 1 Thessalonians. Let me show you where this happened. Go to Acts, in the book of uh, Acts, chapter number 17. Acts chapter 17. Now, some of you will know that Acts chapter 17 follows Acts chapter 16, which is a totally life-transforming truth, I know. You're really good with numbers, and so you know that. But why that matters is because what happens in Acts 17 follows what happens in Acts chapter 16, which many of you will know that Acts 16 contains this epic moment in the history of the church, which I've taught you about for years, which is an an event or a moment which we call the Macedonian call. This is Acts 16 verse 19, if you want to look at it or mark it. Acts 16 verse 19 where the Apostle Paul and his missionary company receive a vision that they are to leave um, Asia, leave the East, and cross over into Europe. And In Acts 16, for the very first time, the gospel comes to Europe. Now, why does that matter to us? Because if the gospel was going to get from Jerusalem, do you remember what Jesus said right before he went to heaven? You're to carry the gospel to Jerusalem. That's where it started then Judea, that's the area around Jerusalem, Samaria, that's the broader area, and then to the ends of the earth. Well, if it was going to get to the ends of the earth, if it was going to make it to Weaverville, it had to go first of all to Europe. and It went to Europe in Acts chapter number 16. That's why that's so important. Acts 16, it comes to Philippi, he preaches the gospel in Philippi. He's arrested, spends some time in jail in Philippi. Well, not much time, just an evening. He, God, God opens the doors and they leave that night, but he's arrested in Philippi. And in chapter 17, he arrives in Thessalonica. Can I read it to you? Look at verse 1 Acts 17, verse 1. Now, when they had passed through Amphibolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them. And for three Sabbath days, that is three Sabbaths in a row, he reasoned with them out of the Old Testament or out of the Scriptures. And so when he takes the Scriptures to convince them, as verse 3 says, that Jesus is the Messiah, he doesn't use the Gospel of Matthew, right? Because it hadn't been written yet. He doesn't use the book of Ephesians because he hadn't written it yet. When he opens the scriptures, what's the opening? The scrolls of of Isaiah, the scrolls of the Old Testament prophets. Don't be one of those Christians who says, I don't read the Old Testament. I don't really like the Old Testament. I just can't hang out. I like Jesus in the New Testament. Jesus is in the whole Bible, okay? He uses the Old Testament to allege and convince them that Jesus is the Messiah. Verse number three, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and Risen from the dead, and that Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, verse number four. And some of them believed and uh, remained or uh, consorted with Paul and Silas. And uh, of those devout Greeks, there was a great multitude of them that believed. And there were a, a good number, not a few, of the chief women or the influential women of the city. And so Paul arrives with Silas. Uh, with Timothy, with his with his company, they arrive in Thessalonica, and they preach the gospel in the synagogue. They preach the gospel in the city streets and in the marketplaces. They preach the gospel in homes. And the Bible says in verse number four that some people believed. Some Greeks believed. Now these would have been, uh, in all likelihood, Grecians, Greek people, who had converted to Judaism. So they were in the synagogue, and they heard Paul preaching about Jesus. There were some influential women, verse number uh, four says, some uh, chief women or influential women of the city. They believed as well. In all likelihood, I'm certain there were some other Jews who believed as well, uh, who believed there in Thessalonica. And watch this. With that happening in verses one through four, just like that, the church in Thessalonica was born. Paul arrives, he preaches the gospel, he proclaims who Christ is, some people believe uh, in Christ, he disciples them, and just like that, there is a church. Do you see the model of that, by the way? This is Missiology 101. This is the way it works. That you carry the gospel into a place, you go where there was previously not a witness or where you didn't have a witness on the mission field, or across town, across the street, into the home of your neighbor where they don't have the gospel. You go to a place where there's no gospel. You preach the gospel. Some people, not everybody, but some people will believe the gospel, disciple those people, and guess what you've got? A witnessing community. You've got the presence of the body of Christ. You have a church formed there. By the way, I want you to think of that not just as a biblical reality, but as a mission model for us. You know, four months in October, we're going to launch a church in East Asheville, a part of our community where we have no witness right now. We're going to do what Paul did. We're going to go into that community. We have one agenda. We're going to preach the gospel. And as we preach the gospel, guess what's going to happen? Some people are going to believe the gospel, and we're going to disciple those people, and guess what will be born in East Asheville, North Carolina, a gospel witness of Brookstone Church. It's the missions model of Acts chapter number 17. So they go to Thessalonica, they preach the gospel, and some believe. Well, after Acts 17, or by the end of Acts 17, Paul moves on to other cities, and the church at Thessalonica continues to thrive and if you go back to 1 Thessalonians, you will be arriving at one of two letters that Paul then later wrote back to those believers that he loved so much, whom he had led to the Lord there in Thessalonica. He wrote them two letters, two personal notes. Those two letters are First and Second Thessalonians in our Bible. And here's what you're going to find interesting, not only today, but really as we study through this entire summer. It is that Paul's heart, when he wrote to these Thessalonians, kept going back to this truth that Jesus is coming again. He kept saying it to them. He kept revisiting it. In fact, did you know that every chapter in these two letters, all eight chapters, each of those chapters records a statement, a a fact about the return of Christ. In fact, I want to I help you see those, and so I'm going to ask you to turn with me just through, the, through these eight chapters quickly, and with your pen, I want you to put an asterisk next to each place where these chapters talk about the return of Jesus. And so you'll begin in chapter one, 1 Thessalonians chapter one, put an asterisk next to verse number 10. There in the very beginning, Paul talks about the return of the Lord, and to wait for his son from heaven, he talks about the return of of Jesus. Look at chapter 2 and verse number 19. Put an asterisk there. Chapter 2, verse 19. For what is our hope, our joy, our crown of rejoicing? Are not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? Go to chapter number four, or chapter three, rather, verse number 13. Chapter 3, verse 13, to the end that he may establish your hearts, unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put an asterisk next to that verse. Look at chapter number 4 and verse number 16. Chapter 4, verse 16 says, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. Well, there's a reference to his return. Mark that one. And look at chapter 5, the last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5 and verse 2. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord is coming as a thief in the night. It's a reference to the return of the Lord. So all five chapters in 1 Thessalonians, what about 2 Thessalonians? Look at chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 7. Put an asterisk next to verse 7. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. Look at chapter 2. Put an asterisk next to verse number 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 1. Now we beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus and by our gathering together unto him. And then lastly, in chapter 3 and verse number 5, put an asterisk there, and the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patient waiting for Christ. And so every one of these chapters, all eight of the chapters that make up these two letters mention the coming. Now, you remember that when Paul wrote these letters, he didn't go chapter one, verse one, verse two, verse three. He just writes the letter. It was later divided into chapters and verses, but in his writing of the letter, he keeps returning. His heart is just drawn to that reality of Christ's return. So we're gonna spend the summer of 22 for 10 weeks all the way through mid-August. We're gonna spend some time thinking together about his return and about what Paul tells us in these two letters that we ought to be doing As we wait. All right, go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. Let me read the text for today, beginning in verse number 1. 1 Thessalonians 1 and verse 1. Paul and Silvanus, that's Silas, Paul and Silas, and Timotheus, under the church of the Thessalonians, which is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father. And from the Lord Jesus Christ, we give thanks to God always for you, brothers, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father, knowing, brothers, beloved, your election of God. For our gospel did not come unto you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost, and in much assurance or conviction, as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy in the Holy Ghost. And you were examples to all that were in Macedonia and in Achaia, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in all of Macedonia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves, that is your labor, your faith, your works for the Lord, they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God." And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. For you yourselves know, brethren, our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much uh, contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor of guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Let me stop in verse 4 for one second. Do you remember what I was mentioning earlier about the parable that Jesus told twice? I am going away, and I am entrusting to you my business affairs. In verse number 4 of chapter number 2, he says, God has entrusted to us the gospel. And we have been faithful with it. Verse number five. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. Nor of men did we seek glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and travail, how that laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. And you are witnesses, and God also, of how we lived wholly and justly and unblameably, behaving ourselves among you that believe. Obviously, Paul is writing this letter, and he begins in the beginning part of it to simply say, I remember my time with you. You remember how we ministered among you. He's rehearsing in this letter what had happened several years earlier when he was there ministering in Thessalonica, as it's recorded in Acts chapter number 17, and he's celebrating or rejoicing in who they are in Christ as a result of his ministry, I want you to begin understanding this entire thing by writing down, if you will, in your notes, this fact that, that in Paul's life, what we find is, the, is an example of the power of a life, a single life, which is sold out for Christ. You see this in his re, re, rehearsing with them how their ministry had happened there in Thessalonica. You know, I mentioned to you earlier Paul's insistence, his persistence in carrying the gospel forward. Macedonian call, making sure he would get the gospel over into Europe. And even when he lands in Europe, Acts 16 records how that in Philippi, he suffers. He's thrown in jail in Philippi, and yet he doesn't quit And the reason that Paul didn't quit when times got tough is this singular fact. Paul had committed his entire life to Jesus. He was sold out to Jesus. Let me ask you a question. This is not a congregational question. This is a coffee shop question. This is a question that you might ask me or I might ask you if we were sitting across the table from one another having a cup of coffee just talking and I were to say to you or you were to ask me hey let me let me ask you are you completely sold out to Jesus It's not a hypothetical It's not a question without consequence It's an important question Are you sold out completely for Jesus Christ. Now I tend to think that if we were having that conversation. And maybe you're thinking this right now in your heart. The answer would be something like. Well you know I want to be. And I, I hope I'm becoming more and more sold out to him. And I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering in fresh ways. As he, as he makes those things known to me. But how can you really know? Well I think we can find a how we can know. In the example of Paul in his life. What does it look like? What does a life look like that's sold out to Jesus? Write these things down. I think you'll see these in Paul's life. First of all, a life that's completely sold out to Jesus is a life of sacrifice. It's a sacrificial life. You see this in verses one and two. When Paul says, we came to you, in verse number uh, two, we give thanks to, to, I'm sorry, go to chapter two. (laughs) I'm in chapter one. In verse one, he says, you brethren, you know our entrance in unto you. It wasn't in vain. But even after we were shamefully entreated, we we suffered in Philippi, we were continuing to come and bring the gospel to you. We were willing to sacrifice. That's a life that's sold out for Jesus. Let me just be plain. Let me be clear. If y'all are listening, shout amen. amen. The life that refuses to sacrifice, time, treasure, convenience, ease, The life of a Christian that refuses to give sacrificially of ourselves is not a life that is sold out completely for Jesus. The life sold out for Christ is a life willing to sacrifice. Secondly, in Paul, we see boldness. A life sold out to Jesus is a life of boldness. Chapter 2 and verse number 2. He says, but even after we were shamefully entreated in Philippi, as you know, We were bold in our God to speak the gospel to you with much contention. He faced suffering in Thessalonica as well, and yet he spoke with boldness, verse 2 says, or he spoke with courage. The life sold out to Jesus is a life which will boldly speak, even though it might be uncomfortable or it might even bring some persecution. Here's what we need to learn, that Christians need to get beyond our timidity, I'm not talking about personality. We're all wired a little differently. Some are more gregarious and outgoing. Others are more reserved and and, and a little more timid by nature. I'm not talking about personality. Here's what I am talking about. If you know Jesus and your life is surrendered to him, that will produce a courage, a boldness to speak, where someone less sold out might find much timidity in their lives. It is a life of courage or a life of boldness. Number three... The life sold out to Jesus is a life of authenticity, beginning in verse 3. He says, for our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor of guile. We were not being manipulative. Verse number uh, 5, neither did we use flattering words. We didn't use a cloak of covetousness. God is our witness. Verse number 6, we didn't seek glory from you for of any other pe- or from any other people. He said, we were just authentic. We loved the Lord. And we came to you to proclaim the gospel out of our love for Christ. That's the life that's sold out. Number uh, number four, a life that is sold out to Christ is a life of authentic or genuine love. This is verse number seven of chapter number two. He says, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse or a mother nursing her child. We were affectionately desirous of you. That means our heart was for you. We were willing to have imparted to you not only the gospel, but our own souls. We would, would have given our very souls for you. The life sold out to Christ is a life of genuine love. And then lastly, the life sold out to Christ, verse number 10 tells us, is a life of holiness. You were witnesses. God is our witness also how we lived, we behaved holy and justly and unblameably. Loved ones, the life sold out to Jesus is a life that wants to be marked by Holiness. Yeah, you know how many Christians want to try to live as close to the line as they can? They, they want to try to enjoy as much of the world as they can without really crossing over into outright debauchery. And the life that's sold out to Jesus says, I don't want to see how close I can get to the world. I want to see how close I can get to Jesus. I, I don't want to see how ungodly I can be and still be a Christian. I want to see how godly I can be and still live in this world. And so this is what it looks like to live a life that's fully sold out, Sacrificial bold courageous authentic loving and holy let me ask you again are you sold out to Christ has your life like Paul's been fully surrendered or are you simply a christian consumer happy to consume all of the treasures bequeathed to you by the complete sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and yet never sacrifice for him. May I ask you, what else must he do for you to be fully surrendered? What would it take? He has come from heaven to earth, walked in flesh, died on the cross, been buried, ascended, seated at the right hand, making intercession for you, promised to come for you again. What else could he do that you would surrender your life fully to him? Do you understand that when we recognize that Jesus is coming again and he has done so much for us, we ought to surrender our lives fully. May God save us from consumer Christianity that simply wants to be the blessed of God's goodness and yet never surrender our sacrifice, our love, and our lives for him. When you think about it as we think about Christ coming again. We think about the soon return of the Lord and our family or our friends or our co-workers, our loved ones who don't know Christ. We think about our city so immersed in sin and we know Christ is coming. How can we be content to simply coast along in our ease and not sacrifice fully for him? D.L. Moody, many of you will know that name, was the great Chicago evangelist of the 19th century. Died in 1899. Had a greater impact on the world for Christ, perhaps, than any other man living in that century. He was led to faith in Jesus by his Sunday school teacher, by the way, Edward Kimball. All of you who serve in Brookstone Kids, I see some of you wearing Brookstone Kids because you've been serving or you're going to serve. All of you who serve in Brookstone Kids, way to go. God bless you. All of you who are signing up to serve in Summer Splash VBS this year, way to go. You might be teaching the next D.L. Moody. Edward Kimball led D.L. Moody to faith in Jesus. God raised up D.L. Moody to be this incredible force for the gospel. And At some point early in Moody's Christian experience, he said these words, The world has yet to see what God can do with one man fully consecrated to him. But by God's help, I aim to be that man. And if we will aim to be that man or that woman, we will have a great impact as well. I want you to know that Paul, and it's evidenced in his letter to Thessalonians, he was a man fully surrendered to Christ. Number two, he not only rehearses and reminds them of what it looks like to have a life surrendered to Christ, but he also reminded them of the transforming power of the gospel. This is in chapter 1. In verse number five, he understood, by the way, that his life, fully surrendered, had no power in itself. It was just a tool. His life was just the the tool that God would use. But the real power lay not in his surrender, nor does it lie in our surrender. The real power lies in the gospel. Look at it, chapter number one, in verse five. He says, for our gospel came not unto you in word only, But also when the gospel came in word, it came with power, power in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance or in much conviction. He says when our gospel came, it came with such power in the Holy Spirit that you began to be convinced that what the gospel proclaimed, the death, burial and resurrection of Christ for our sins and our salvation, you became convinced that that was true. Which, by the way, if y'all are listening, shout amen. It's the reason we ought to be filled with hearts of prayer. That we ought to beg God for his power and his touch upon our lives and our ministry because there's no power within us. It's only as the Holy Spirit uses the gospel. He says, you believed the gospel. He says, the power comes in the gospel. Loved ones, this this is what we offer to, to the world. This is what we offer to our community. This, this is what we offer to our friends and our loved ones. A life so transformed by the power of God that it's, uh, through the gospel that it's radically different. He says in verse number five, the gospel came in power. Verse number six, and it resulted in a converted soul. Verse number six, and you became followers of us and of the Lord because you received the word. This is what we offer. It's what we offer our, our loved ones. It's what we offer East Asheville. It's what we offer the world a converted soul, that you would receive the word and that you would become a follower of the Lord. And in fact, that converted soul leads to a transformed life. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. Remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and your patience of hope. He said, I saw God change your lives and make you servants of the Lord. Look at verse number number 7. Your examples to all that believe in Macedonia. Verse number 8 The gospel, the word sounded out from you around the entire, uh, that part of the world. Verse number nine, you turn from idols to serve the living God. Do you understand? This is what the gospel does. When a sold out man and a sold out woman and a sold out church will go forth with the gospel, knowing that Jesus is coming, we go forth with the gospel and we carry that gospel forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. People believe it. Their lives are changed. Their souls are converted and they turn from their old life and they begin to live a new life. Praise God for that transforming power. So Paul says, this is what happened in Acts 17 when I came to you. We came with the gospel. The power of God was on the message and your lives were changed He says that your lives change so much. Look at chapter 1 and verse number 10. Your lives change so much. Verse 9 says, You turn from idols to serve the living God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he hath raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivered us from the wrath to come. I, I read that this week, and it struck me as a question, a question all of us ought to think about. And It's this question simply. It's what are you waiting for he says to them, you, are what you, you turn to serve God and wait for the living, wait for his son from heaven. What are you waiting for? I asked you a question earlier. Are you fully sold out to Jesus? If your answer is no, may I ask you a question? What are you waiting for? What is it that is causing you to, to, to slow down, to wait, to hold back? And if you haven't put your faith and your trust in Christ, what are you waiting for? Why don't you just trust him? Why don't you just put your faith and confidence in what he did? Why are you waiting? Every person in this room is waiting for one of two things, and they're both mentioned in verse number 10. You're either waiting for the wrath of God in eternity. That's what verse number 10 says. That Jesus came to deliver us from wrath. He came to rescue us from wrath. So if I haven't been rescued from wrath, what am I waiting to receive? Wrath. You're either waiting for the wrath of God in eternity, in hell, or you're waiting for the Lord Jesus Christ from heaven who delivered you from that wrath. I'm either looking for Jesus or I'm looking for an eternity without God. One of those two things. And if you haven't put your faith in Christ, why not? What is it that you're waiting on? So many times I hear Christians who say, Jesus is coming soon. And I'm so glad because this world's awful. I'm sick of it and all those sinners. Jesus is coming to take us out of here. Do you know how selfish that is? Do you know how completely self-absorbed we must be to say such a thing? What we should say is, Jesus is coming soon. I don't have much time. I want to sell out completely to reach as many with the gospel as I can. And he'll take us out of here.